Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, No man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks, whom all of us know simply as Prof. My wife Cynthia and I first met him in the fall of 1959 during my days as a first-year student at Dallas Seminary. It was one of those love-at-first-sight experiences between a student and a professor. Ultimately, I took every course he offered during my four years at DTS. Our relationship grew only closer and deeper as more than 50 years passed. His mark on me as a teacher has been etched permanently in my life and my ministry. Since I was his student, I have not prepared a message from God's Word without remembering and applying the techniques Prof taught me. The Moses Upper Desert Discourse. It's found in Deuteronomy, chapter 6. A number of years ago, I had two experiences which marked me for life. They were separated by many years and by many miles. But they were brought together by the Spirit of God in my thinking. I was a young, naive pastor in the city of Fort Worth, Texas. And at the conclusion of one of the morning worship services, a mother of five came up and said, Pastor, I want you to know that every time the doors of this church are open, I will guarantee that my five children will be here. And in my youthful enthusiasm, I was carried away with excitement. In fact, I shared it with my wife, but for some strange reason, she didn't rise to the occasion. And I was soon to discover why. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a fraud. A fraud being perpetrated by many a Christian parent who in effect takes his child to the doors of an evangelical church and deposits him there and says, here, you lead my child to Christ. You teach him the word of God. And in so doing, he feels he has shed himself of the responsibility that God has placed at his doorstep. Besides, he has a very convenient dumping ground should the young man or woman not turn out to his specification, then he always has someone to blame. Many years after this, I was ministering in the East and a prominent pastor came up at the conclusion of the meeting, placed a bulletin beneath my nose and said, look at that, Hendricks something going on every night in the week. I said, are you proud of that fact? It was obvious that he was. I said, I wouldn't be. I'd be ashamed of that. 
I said, let's suppose. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a tremendous supposition. Let's suppose, I asked this pastor, that the people in your church were interested in cultivating their home life. On what night of the week would you suggest they do that? To which he responded with the agnostic, I don't know. And that pastor's ignorance forced a question in my mind. Is it possible that our churches are doing more to break up our homes than they are to build them up? Are we engaged in a program of competition with the home or of cooperation with the home? Do we conceive the home to be our greatest adversary or our greatest ally? Men and women, the church is not and can never become a substitute for a parent. There is no substitute for a parent. And God never called the church to function in that realm. There are only two divinely ordained agencies in the New Testament. One of these is the church, and the other is the home. And I believe the church and the home are divinely divine as a cooperative. The church, biblically conceived, is a training ground. And one of the primary purposes of a New Testament church is to equip parents for their work of ministry in their home. Not to do their work for them, but to equip them to do their work. You know, it's an exciting thing to be in the ministry, but it's particularly exciting to me to be in the ministry of equipping parents. God has given me wonderful opportunities, not only in local churches, but through various organizations and in various conferences to minister to couples. And I talk on family worship and family finances and family recreation and sex education, etc., etc. You know, every time I get the same experience, it's like preaching from 3rd Timothy. <laughs> Where in the world did you get this? It's all in the scriptures. But it's amazing how we can overlook the obvious. And I sometimes wonder what in the world we have been doing in our churches. When I realize that the greatest breakdown on the American scene today is the breakdown of home life. And I am not speaking simply of the unregenerate world. I know it's fractured and decimated there. I would expect that. But when I see the breakdown of evangelical home life in our country, I am greatly disturbed. 
And I believe our churches need to get back into the business of equipping parents for their work of ministry. Now the home, as conceived by the New Testament, is a proving ground. It's a proving ground for training those who will take over places of leadership in the church. Did you ever read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the pastoral epistle? You take the time to read and to study these epistles, you will discover that an elder, a deacon in the local assembly must have clear-cut qualifications. And among those qualifications is competency in his home life. One that ruleth well his own home. And he explains, if you don't know how to rule your own home, friend, you are disqualified to rule the church. His argument is, if a man can't function in a limited sphere, don't enlarge it. And you know, I've done some interesting studies. I have studied over 1,500 church constitutions representing every major denomination and group across this country. And the interesting thing is, conspicuous by its absence are the requirements of the New Testament related to the home. Some of these constitutions are absolutely unreal. They not only have the filthy five and the nasty nine and the dirty dozen, they've got everything on that list that you can imagine. Everything except New Testament specifications. I believe if you're looking for a man to serve as a deacon or an elder or a leader in your local church, the first place you ought to look is in his home. And the reason we have a breakdown in our churches is that we have a serious breakdown in our home, the proving ground for leadership in the local church. And we're breaking down in the home because the church is ceasing to fulfill its primary function. Now just stop and think for me with the moment. The average church has a child for approximately 1% of his time. The home has him for approximately 83% of his time. The public school, the other 16%. Now, if we can combine these two, particularly in terms of a training relationship, it's my judgment that if you make an impact of 84% of the time of a child in terms of spiritual infection, nothing in any public school can undo that impact. And I think sometimes we get all shook up over the public school, and I am not suggesting that we should not be disturbed in this area. What I'm suggesting is that it can be a cop-out. It can be a dodge for facing the deeper issue. But the breakdown is coming. 
in our home. Now, I want to borrow a message, a message preached many hundreds of years ago, but far more relevant than tomorrow morning's newspaper. It's relevant because it's revealed. And it's found here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to draw your attention to verses 4 through 9. Let's take a moment to reconstruct the historical backdrop. The children of Israel were wending their way through the wilderness, and they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea, actually just a wide spot in the road, except for a decision they made there, a decision that determined their destiny. God had told them to go directly into the land. They said, in effect, let's not play the part of a fool. Let's be practical. Let's appoint a committee. So in typical committee fashion, they come back with a majority and a minority report. Who are the two men that brought the minority report? Joshua, Caleb. I defy any of you to give me any one of the names of the other ten men. You haven't memorized them? They're all in the opening verses of Numbers 13. You better get with it. <laughs> Who in the world wants to memorize them? They said, we're not able men or giants up in that land, Texas variety. That's in the Hebrew. <laughs> and besides, we're just a bunch of God's grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb said, we're well able. Let's go up at once and possess it. I love the enthusiasm of these men. What was the difference? Do you think Joshua said to Caleb, Giants? I don't see any giants, Caleb. Do you? Where in the world are the giants? <laughs> and I think, you know, if CBS had interviewed Brother Joshua and said, Hey, buddy, uh, with what company are you assigned? He'd say, God's grasshopper, sir, reporting for duty. I think he had an accurate appraisal of the giants and the grasshoppers. The difference is, these two men saw God. And the size of your God always determines the size of your faith. But, you know, like any American, the majority is always right. So as a result of a majority decision, an entire generation perished in the wilderness. For 40 years, they were on the wilderness merry-go-round. When they got off, they were exactly at the same place as when they got on. The only two men who ever got into the land were Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses never got in. In grace, he was allowed to see the land, but never to enter it because of his unbelief. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is delivering his magnificent obsession. It's the obsession of obedience. Now, therefore, hearken unto me. He is grooming a new generation perched on the threshold of entering the land. These are his last words. And last words are often lasting words. And I'm intrigued to find what is very high on Moses' priority list. When the last thing he can say to a new generation about to enter the land 
what would he elect to discuss? And to me, it is not an accident that one of the first things he elects to discuss is the home. For paramount in God's priority system for Israel was the home. It's one of the major reasons for its continued existence. When many other cultures have gone down greased tubes. It's not an accident either that this section, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, comes in the section of practical exhortations. It is a part of a series of applications in which Moses is applying the commandments of the Lord to the life and experience of the children of Israel. In fact, it's from this very section that Jesus Christ selects three pointed verses of Scripture to defeat the devil in his temptation experience. Have you checked your memory pack lately? How many verses you got from this section? If your victory depended upon your knowledge of this section, how would you make out? This is a very crucial section of the Word of God. In fact, my judgment, this is one of the major reasons why the critics have concentrated on Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book outside of Daniel. Now, I want you to note three strands to the author's argument, and we want to unravel it because it's very closely woven and very powerfully and climactically presented. First of all, I want you to note in verses 4 through 6, Moses says to this generation and ours, God's truth must be a thing of the heart. God's truth must be a thing of the heart. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah. And thou shalt love Jehovah thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thine heart. Now I want you to know two basic principles that are developed. The first is the fact that revelation always demands a response. Doctrine is dynamic. The moment God says something, I'm obligated to do something. God spoke to Israel, and he did not stutter. In verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's the great Old Testament Shema. That's the doctrinal affirmation of Judaism. The monotheism of Israel. You ever listened to a Jewish program on television or on radio? The next time you do, mark 
that the rabbi or the officiating person will always begin with the Hebrew expression, which is a direct quotation of Deuteronomy 6.4. The first words they will say are, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Every service begins with this doctrinal affirmation. But that revelation demands a response. It's not enough to have accurate doctrine. The word of God was not given to satisfy your curiosity. It was given to change your life. What is the response? Verse 5. Thou shalt love Jehovah thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Please note the response is to be a response of love. And it is to be a response that embraces the total personality of the individual. His intellect, his emotions, his will, all must be captured by the truth which God has revealed. But there's a second principle I want you to note, and that is not only must revelation demand a response, and it's a response of love, but there is also the principle that relationship always determines reality. So he says, verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be not in, as you have in the King James Version, but upon thine heart. The thought of the original Hebrew is burden, it's weight, it's concern. This is not something you hold. This is something that holds you. This is not something you get a grip upon. This is something that gets a vice grip upon you. I believe the greatest tragedy in home life today is that we are trafficking in unlived truth. The word of God has not been responded to with a response of love. The word of God is not producing what it was designed to produce, and that's reality in the light. Looking out over the audience, it's obvious that some of you could use what I'm thinking about selling. We're going to put this barn up if this project goes over. Suppose I were to tell you that at the end of the session, I were planning to sell some hair restoring oil. Now, please don't laugh because this is very serious. <laughs> People here who desperately need this. Hair restoring oil, it's made of a special concoction of Texas herbs, guaranteed to put hair on your head, and I'm going to sell it for the fantastic sum of $3 a bottle, and every $2 will put toward the barn. How many of you will buy a bottle? Well, I got one back here, but let's face it, some thank you. Here's another. Some of you need it worse than they do. Three dollars a bottle, guaranteed to put hair on your head. What a skeptical audience. really knows how to hurt you. <laughs> My friend, that's exactly what you would say. 
Look, Hendricks, bend over. <laughs> if that stuff is so good, you get a hole on your head and Hendricks will buy a carload of the stuff. We'll franchise it. We'll put that building up in a month. But you know, that's exactly what's happening in your home every day of the week. You're trying to sell spiritual hair restoring oil and you're as bald as can be. And my friend, you cannot impart what you do not possess. I really think most of us would be better parents if we were deaf and dumb. Because then we would be forced to communicate where you communicate most effectively. And that is by the reality of Jesus Christ in your experience. The God I communicate is the one whose life I live, not merely the one I talk about. The greatest forces in the life of a child, Moses is reminding us, are unconscious. But they are so powerful. I was speaking at Mount Hermon some time ago. It was a couples conference, and at the end of one of the sessions, we were having a little discussion up at the front, maybe about 10 or 15 couples. They were asking some questions. And I saw this lady come in the back door, and I knew she was after something. The first thing she did was to hit the guy in the back of the auditorium who had just taken the tape off the reel. She knocked it out of his hand and it went down. It took him two hours to get it back. She punctured three or four conversational groups coming down the aisle, went right into the middle of this group where I was answering questions and put her hand up in my face like that. I said, just a moment, madam. I'll be glad to answer your question. Finally, I said, madam, what is your question? Well, she said, Professor Hendricks, what I would like to know is what can you tell me that would help make my children more patient? Now, I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that even preachers have temptation. <laughs> Fortunately, on this occasion, I resisted. But you know, really, the answer to that is disgustingly simple. You want your children to be more patient? It's very easy. Just ask God to make you a patient person. You want them to be more thoughtful? Ask him to develop thoughtfulness in you. For years, I used to pray, Lord, change my children. And nothing happened. Until finally it occurred to me I was praying the wrong prayer. And I started to pray, Lord, change my children's father. And my friends, to the extent that I saw Jesus Christ move into my experience and bring about supernatural change, then I saw the most dramatic and obviously divine changes in the life of my children. I received Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was nine years of age. And like many a teenager, I was quite convinced that I could do a better job with my life than Jesus Christ could. And so I started to play the drums. Gene Krupa used to come to the Earl Theater in Philadelphia 
He would perform five times in five vaudevilles. I'd sleep through every one of the films just to watch him in action. And he gave a contest in the city of Philadelphia among teenagers. And somehow I managed to win. And the prize was to meet Mr. Krupa in person in the Earl Theater. But unfortunately, they took me into his dressing room a little too soon. For when I came in, he was giving himself a hypodermic needle, a hopeless drug addict. The explanation of why there has never been before or since a drummer to compare with that almost superhuman individual. And somehow my idol crashed. But in typical teenage fashion, I thought, so that's his problem. But I don't have to get hooked on that. We formed a little teenage dance band. It was in the days when these were just becoming popular. We got our first contract in a ballroom in downtown Philly. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Boy, we thought we were off for the main line stuff. And we played for several weeks in this ballroom. And I used to come home about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning to my home on 7th Street. And I'd climb up those stairs, and my grandmother, who reared me, was hard of hearing. So when she prayed, she prayed out loud. Not because she was trying to impress anyone. She couldn't hear herself, so it never occurred to her that anyone else could hear. And as I came up those steps, I could hear over and over again, Howard. 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 And I can still remember the night when I walked into that bedroom and said, Hendricks, how stupid can you get? The very thing you are looking for, your grandmother possesses. And that's reality. My friend, you cannot impart what you do not possess. If you don't have it, you can infect your children with it. And the place to begin in terms of thinking, how can I make a greater impact on my children is to ask the Spirit of God to make a greater impact upon your heart through response to the revelation you have heard this week by a reality that can only be produced by a relationship that is dynamic and personal. And the more dynamic that relationship, the more dynamic the reality. All right, let's pray. Father, you're so patient with us. We're poor learners. We're slow learners. We're dull. We're insensitive. Father, we pray that you will continue to open us up and sensitize us by the Spirit of God. Father, make these days to be very significant because of what you said to us and because of what we resolve to do by your grace. And we trust you with expectation because you are a great God and we've learned to expect great things at your hand. In Christ's name, amen.
been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.